when those few students in Paris took his ideas, turned them into a reality, made the streets their own, and virtually brought down the government de Gaulle, excited us all over here no end. It's not what, you know, people tend to follow the kind of flow dynamics of the crowd, and that plays very much into the hands of developers who want to screen places off. They want to not only negate art, but, as the, in the way Du Bois put it, also realize it, which is to say, make of daily life a creative, continuously original, delirious, ecstatic experience. Hello, and welcome to ACFM. My name's Keir Milburn, and I'm joined once again by Nadia Idol. Hello. And Jeremy Gilbert. Hello. Today we're discussing acid urbanism, which means we want to discuss ideas such as uh, the right to the city, and not just the ideas, but also the uh, actions and slogans through which this idea of the right to the city is put into practice. So we'll also be discussing things such as reclaim the streets, uh, situationist derives, all that sort of good stuff. So the right to the city is probably useful if I uh, introduce that just very briefly. Um, the right to the city is associated with uh, Henri Lefebvre, who wrote a book called Right to the City in 1968. You know, in various ways that has sparked this whole series of discussions about what cities are for and what they should be for. Uh, at the minute, we probably say that cities are dominated by um, a particular logic, right? And that logic is a logic of extraction, you know. How do we extract the maximum amount of rents of various kinds from the people who live in the cities or the people who, who visit the cities as well? You know, that's all just another way of saying um, that cities are uh, dominated by the logic of finance or finance capital. The way that, that, that actually works is, you know, municipal authorities sort of see their role as as facilitating whatever the large developers want to, to do. Right? They call it like developer-led development. The problem is that model of the city is definitely in crisis. Right? It's in crisis firstly because of the whole climate crisis, right? but also it's just in crisis on its own terms, as in cities are increasingly difficult to live in or they're, they're increasingly difficult to live well in. Um, so the right to the city is about asserting you know, our right to live in the city um, to live well in a city, but also our right to collectively determine how cities develop, so to collectively answer the question, what cities are for. All right, who wants to chip in? Nadia? So when we talk about right to the city or reclaim the streets, I think it's important to have a think about like, what are we reclaiming the city for and why do we need to reclaim the city and what right do we want that we don't have already? So I think one of the key things to note is the affect or like rather the emotional kind of landscape of how um, a citizen or a non-citizen or someone who exists in the space of the city along with other people feels about occupying that space. And what I mean by that is experientially, when you leave the door to go to your wor workplace or, you know, to uh, a social event or you try and move around the space, how does the space actually make you feel? And do you feel a sense of constriction 
of wanting to pass through that space as quickly as possible because, you know, it's really crowded. People are getting in the way. Um, it's really loud. You have all of this noise around you, visual and audio noise, like all of those different things. Or is it a space which maybe is the other extreme, which is it's barren. There's no one around. It's really depressing. It's all tumbleweed, etc. Or some of the positive ways that you could experience it is you feel like your city is really well designed or you not even if you think you don't necessarily need to know that or think about that consciously, but you might be able to move through the space in a way where there's lots of places to sit, where you don't have to pay money, you don't feel like you're under surveillance. And there's all of these different aspects to being able to go and come from it that don't cost you money and don't cost your head a lot of stress. And those are those that that experience of what it's like to be in a city has changed dramatically under neoliberalism. Now that doesn't mean that all cities were perfect beforehand and weren't there weren't like serious antagonisms in people's experiences. But the key thing under neoliberalism is this kind of uh, shiny, commercialized pollution, especially visual and and um, auditory pollution that we experience. So, for example, in London, on the London Underground, which is paid for by public funds, um, because of this, uh, I think it's the, the public-private initiative or whatever, somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, it, there's the tube is absolutely covered with advertising and not only is it covered with advertising it's advertising that is now um video advertising that's talking to you so it's all it's very very difficult to kind of have a an experience of being on the underground on transport that isn't expensive isn't crowded and where you're not bombarded with sounds and images. So therefore, if we're thinking about reclaiming transport in a city, what would that look like? I mean, that point about branded space, I think, is really important, actually, because we had, I mean, in the past sort of 10 years in London, we had the introduction of these, you know, network of publicly owned bicycles that like anyone can borrow from a kind of, you know, location and then use for a really small fee and then put them back and... Yeah, you know, they're called. You know, they they're nicknamed Boris bikes because Boris Johnson was mayor of London when they were brought in. Or that I, I don't think it was his initiative, but um, but they're totally they're all kind of brand. I mean, the thing is that I mean, to me, I was amazed when that was first started because that it's sort of part of you know anarchist folklore. Um, the kind of free bicycle scheme that was set up was sort of initiated by uh, so basically anarchist group on the municipal council in Amsterdam to the late 60s or early 70s called the white bicycles and it was just like it was just like the idea was there was just a load of bicycles paid for by the city and anybody could ride them and just just leave them anywhere and then whoever needed one would pick one up and ride it and i remember being told about this by my dad as this like piece of sort of utopian as i say folklore and the you know the boris bikes are basically the same idea but then they completely ruined it by just totally by just branding it they all have, they've all got the names of banks on them but also it's not you know, free sponsorship logos it's not that's free the key, no. that's the key thing is that's really interesting as you were saying that i was like wow that really sounds utopic and that's not at all my experience of how how i relate to uh, the the boris bikes or whatever because it's like oh that's going to take my data oh it's really complicated i have to sign up to it i mean maybe it's not but i've not tried them to be honest 
And uh, that's partly assisted, of course, by our wonderful communist-style bike hire system that we have in London, uh, which is funded by Barclays Bank, I'm delighted to say. I mean, the relationship between the idea of reclaiming the city and, you know, pushing back against, you know, branding, it's related to sort of anti-gentrification campaigns, isn't it? And, it? and it was part of the sort of rhetoric of reclaim the streets in the 90s. I mean, reclaim the streets became associated with the kind of anti-corporate movement that, you know, Naomi Klein made a reputation writing about, you know, which was, which was about this. It, I mean, it was seen as, you know, part of the politics of reclaim the streets in the 90s was this sense that, the sort of capture of the streets by really by cars, which was this sort of inherently alienating and alienated devices, was was continuous with the sort of capture of public space and people's imaginations by brands, and then it all it all had to be sort of pushed back against. Yeah, I mean, um, reclaim the streets are an interesting uh, example, actually, of like an activist form, which was really was based around like reimagining or trying to break break with the contemporary way which we. Th- we think about cities and try to reimagine what they'd be like if we just changed a few things so that reclaim the streets were street parties um, where, where a particular road would be occupied. Um, and then um, we, and so that would be denied to, to the, to, to traffic, which is what is normally, you know, normally uh, such a huge part of the city is devoted to the free flow of traffic, perhaps less so now, but certainly, certainly still true. Uh, so it'd be blocked off from that that use, and then you'd have to reinvent a new use. Because Reclaim the Streets came out of the rave scene, basically, via the Criminal Justice Act, which banned um, repetitive beats, etc. Uh, you know, basically what may, people mainly did was have street parties. And the street parties, you know, they, they basically would be sound systems blasting out, usually techno. <laughs> and that would bring the numbers. But there were also attempts to do other stuff by Reclaim the Streets. So they'd bring sofas in, they'd bring sand pits in to try and think, right, if we well, didn't we have tu- cars... Yeah, we turfed, up, we turfed up Parliament Square in the year 2000 and made yes, that's true. covered <laughs> the whole of Parliament Square, all, all the streets around it, with, uh, with green... With green and I remember, and yes, I remember um, Winston Churchill wearing a green Mohican from... <laughs> yeah. The, the, the sort of like the, 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 the exemplar of the reclaiming the streets, the best, you know, the most famous incidents was um, when they reclaimed the M41 in 1994, which I wasn't at. But that was, that's like the classic example of like, this is what this action is about. So they, they, there was a big street party, like 6,000, 7,000 ravers brought onto this motorway, blocked the motorway. Then they had all, they had mechanisms for blocking it, you know, these tripods with people on them, et cetera. But like the, the the myth, or not the myth, the, the, the truth about that was that um, amongst the ravers, there were these people on on sort of stilts, wheel stilts, the people dancing on these wheel stilts. So you know, probably like ten foot in the air, and over those sk- those stilts were sort of wire netted dresses, basically. Underneath those dresses were people with power tools who were digging up the M41 <laughs> and they yeah, planted yeah. trees in the holes, basically, that they dug up. Amazing. Of course, the sound of the power tools was covered by the tech now, <laughs> so it was a perfect thing. It was, let's dig up these motorways and we can recreate it as a forest. You know what I mean? It's, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful uh, example of direct action to change things, you know, to change things in the immediate now, but like with that very utopian sort of dimension to it. There's a big tension, right? One of the reasons we have to reimagine the city is because, it, the, you know, they are now based around unsustainable infrastructures, right? You've, we have to green the cities, right? That's one of the urges to, to green the cities. 
But the mentality of, of, of the problem of climate change tends to lead you to a sort of like managerialist, utilitarian mindset. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, let's get the most efficient use of everything. Do you know what I mean? Let's get all the systems to be, to be as efficient as possible. You know, but there are big traditions in the left about trying to reimagine cities uh, which depart in a completely different way. Do you know what I mean? So, well, instead of just like this, you know, the most utilitarian use of the city, let's imagine it in a, in a completely different way. Do you, know, do you know what I'm saying? So one of, the, one of the things we have to talk about is like, we have to talk about the situationists, basically, and this practice of the derive, etc. right? Because that's all about, like, this city could be completely and utterly different. Do you know what I mean? It's, it could be different in ways we can't imagine at the moment. Um, and, you know, there's this huge utopian sort of element to sort of redeveloping cities. I think that's a really, it's an interesting sort of, um, it's an interesting tension or dynamic at the moment. So explain, you better explain who situationists were and what the derive was. Okay. <laughs> well, the situationists... Derive meaning drift, remember. Drift, yeah. So the situationists were a sort of a, a political group that came out of the sort of avant-garde art of the... Of the um, uh, post-war period um and so you know they were con- they're concerned with um you know establishing workers councils and all these sorts of things uh, but they one of their they've got a real they had a real obsession with urbanism and in fact it's, it's like a pre-situationist text so the classic text of for sort of like it, it's if you it's probably the text the ur text if you wanted an acid communist urbanism <laughs> it's by um it's called the formula of a new urbanism by e- ivan chechglove and so I came across this because it's, it's, it plays a big part in um, Graham Marcus's book about the Sex Pistols, Lipstick Traces. Basically, it's a fantastic book, and everyone should read it. And it's just this sort of like this half delirious sort of rant about what the city, um, that the city could be completely different. Do you know what I mean? And it's got these, it's got a really classic, classic lines in it. So there's one line in it that is just, which I see it in my head about you know, um, given the choice between love and a garbage disposer young people all around the world have, have chosen the garbage disposer <laughs> but it also it also carries the line um uh, the hacienda must be built right and that's why the hacienda club in manchester was called the hacienda right that was this uh, tony wilson um who was the man you know this sort of we'll talk about tony wilson perhaps a bit later but you know this half this sort of incredible character from manchester who was like you know a, a figure on the local news and the manager of like lots of man- very influential Manchester bands, but very influenced by sort of like the situationist theory and art theory, <laughs> you know. So he, yeah, but like so in this in this sort of this f- formulary for a new urbanism, like it, it sort of talks about um, uh, it talks about um, you know the, the need to to reimagine everything basically and it says you know we could what we need to have is like sit you know we need to have different cities different quarters in the city devoted to different feelings so there should be a a, a noble quarter a tragic quarter a sinister quarter a useful yeah. quarter which should have all the sort of hospitals what? in it a bizarre quarter <laughs> I, I need to read this text was that the one it was either in that one or in some later situation is track they said that after the revolution when, of course, all religion would become superfluous, churches would be preserved as places in which to experience fear. Which, 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 <laughs> yeah, because fear, <laughs> because fear would not be a part of anybody's everyday life anymore. In 
in uh, after the revolution so it becomes this archaic thing that you you like no i mean it's like archaic emotion which you have to go and experience to remember yeah, what yeah. you've yeah yeah <laughs> i've always liked that idea also sounds a bit maoist but as a practice but okay but in this in this text as well it, like, it lists all of these sorts of things and then it says you know you know, for the main act in this in this utopian city, the main activity would be like drifting, a continuous drifting for between these like changing landscapes. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and so that's this idea of the the drift or the derive is that like, you know, it was actually a practice that they put into, you know, they they they, did, they do used to do these derives and, and make reports out of them, and you'd be it'd be about drifting drifting through a city to try to break from, you know, seeing the city through the logic of capital. Right. So it's that it's this idea that like normally when we move through a city, when we walk through a city, you know, we're doing it for a purpose. But that purpose is not necessarily freely chosen by us. Right. If you step back a moment. So perhaps you're on your way to work. Perhaps you're on your way to, to go shopping, etc. You know, that's not you freely choosing these things. This is this is you at least partly being formed by the needs of capital to grow. Do you know what I mean? And so that their, their, their idea would be would be you try to drift through a, a city in order to sort of uh, break from those and try to discover the you know other lines of desire or whatever, um, so you could sort of think about it. They're trying to re- they're trying to sort of like do some sort of time travel thing where they're trying to find the different like desires that are nascent in a city because the cities aren't just built by capital; they're also inhabited by people, and people turn them to their own forms, etc. So, I mean, I think it's an important point. It's worthwhile making that the idea of the city as an alienated and individualizing space doesn't begin with neoliberalism at all. Yeah, so. There's a whole, all the literature on the city and on the aesthetics of the city um, from the 19th century onwards is about its alienating quality. And some people kind of get off on its alienating quality. You know, some people, you know, some people find the, the anonymity of the city to be liberating. I mean, I'm going to say, I mean, this is always my way of looking at things, really, but there's two sort of axes through which the city is thought about and experienced. It's the place of the crowd or the mob, you know, or the, you know, the people, the collective, you know, and it's the place where our collectivities are formed. It is in Hart and Negri's words, it is the birthplace of the multitude. Um, and, and, you know, and therefore the home of democracy and like the great historic like eruption of that, of that possibility is that, you know, it's the Paris, you know, the Paris or mob in the, in the French Revolution and the Paris Commune in 1870. And on the other hand, it's also the space of absolute atomization, alienation. It, it's, the, it's the place where, for the first time, human beings experience being in a space where on a, on a daily basis, not just exceptionally, they don't know most of the people they see around them. Mm. And so, and it's sort of both those things at the same time. And it's always both those things at the same time. And it always has the potential to be both. I mean, it's clear, actually, even going back to ancient times, look at how people talk about the difference between city life and rural life. It has the potential to be both. It has the potential to be the place where democracy becomes really possible because people get together and discuss stuff instead of just having stuff done to them or doing stuff the way it's always been done. But it's also the space of, like, you know, possible just atomization because you don't know your neighbors and you don't know who the people you are passing in the street and it's always got the potential to be both and and to some extent the political struggle is always over you know which of those it's going to be and then i mean in the middle ages i think it's what I mentioned this earlier so in the middle ages is you know it becomes the cities do become the place where people escape from you know serfdom to there's that you know fantastic you know traditional that german phrase i mean i don't speak german i can't remember what it is in german but it but it translates as the city air makes you free and that was the a reference to you know the actual legal position that if a, if serfs you know people who were 
you know, her legally um, obliged to, um, you know, they weren't quite slaves, chattel slaves, but they were legally obliged to, you know, farm a particular bit of land and hand over most of the product to the person who owned it or controlled it, you know, sort of for life. If they escaped and went to live in a city, in, you know, in a free city, um, there and lived there for a year and a day, then they were legally free um, and were allowed to be, you know, part of the city community. So the city became, and the cities became places where people who didn't want to participate in feudalism sort of joined together and bounded together. And that, and, um, you know, that's where the kind of bourgeoisie come from. That's where capitalism comes from. But it's also where socialism and the possibility of socialism comes from at the same time. And um, But that, that freedom is it's like, that freedom or even that alienation is sort of ambiguous, isn't it? <laughs> right. It's, I think that gets back to what I was sort of trying to say earlier about this tension between, you know, the hyper-efficient city of, of a green city and like the city with like spaces for the new to emerge or whatever. Because, you know, that, 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 yes, the alienated right, experience yeah. of it being the first time where you don't, most of the people you meet you don't know, uh, that is also a condition for a certain type of freedom, right? <laughs> the freedom to reinvent yourself. Do you yeah, know what yeah. I mean? 100%. If you compare it to like rural life where where everybody's in your business all the time, do you know Well, not I mean? just rural life. I mean, in, in, in you know, the, I mean, that's the thing that I found, that I always found re- incredibly liberating about London. You know, as a woman coming from Egypt, having left Egypt, m- m- one of the main reasons because of, because of sexual harassment, like I found that suddenly I was in London and most people like didn't care what you looked like and who you were and like whether you're a woman or not. And I was not constantly being treated in this very specific way. And London, I think is is very liberating like that in that you've got that anonymity and if you're trying to figure out like who you are or 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 what you want or what you want to do it does have that but the extent at which the forces of of neoliberalism the kind of alienating of neoliberalism that we're seeing now I think has started to push it in the other direction, where it's almost impossible to form bonds because of the practicality of day-to-day life, because of housing and transport and costs, etc. So going back to your point, Kia, which I think is a really interesting one, I, I would almost put that as efficiency versus luxuriating. And I would see like luxuriating as like a really important acid concept, both in terms of spice. Uh, spice, not spice. 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 Compulsive spice smoking. <laughs> not, not spice. If you want to be my lover. Definitely not spice. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not spice. Space and time um, uh, is what I wanted to say. As in, yes, there, there is definitely, you could, you could see yourself going down this mentality of like, in order to be green, one must be as efficient as possible. And that ends up creating a certain experiential dynamic which is which is not one where you have all of this time to sit down in space and and be bored and get to know people randomly or like walk around or fall into new parts of the city um etc which i think is 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 really important and maybe it will come up and when we talk about some of the proposals that 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 came up in our workshop at I the think, world transform yeah we should get to that in a minute i think i would say the best book i've read uh, recently about the sort of the connection between urbanism and ecology um is ashley dawson's book extreme cities uh friend of the show ashley dawson um he uh i know he listens so shout out to ashley his book extreme cities a new york-based academic and he makes a very solid case that actually a you can't solve climate the climate crisis without completely reinventing the city 
which you can't do without challenging the power of capital over the city and everything else, and that you really couldn't create. I think he makes a pretty good case implicitly, or, and in some places explicitly, that you could not create the sort of te- technocratic green city, which no doubt sort of the Silicon Valley and their sort of allies in the sort of you know remnants of third way neoliberalism do dream of. That he just that you yeah. couldn't do that. It wouldn't work. That you, it's it that lot, isn't it? Pushing that this. you could only. Yeah. You could only the only city that will really function properly and and result in sufficient levels of you know decarbonisation would be one that would have to slow down to some extent in certain ways. It would have to be. It wouldn't. It would just necessarily provide those spaces of conviviality, because you know there just there would have to be loads of green space in it. There would there would have to interrupt the flows of traffic, etc. Now I'm completely losing track of what I'm I'm think what I got from the book and what I'm still interpolating into it now, but um. But, I mean, this is what the book made me think about, whether it's because it said it or because I thought it. <laughs> you know, this like, you just couldn't. You couldn't, you, you wouldn't get that. You, you, We have to have green cities or we're all dead. And we don't, we're not going to get green cities without shorter working weeks, you know, completely different kinds of transport networks, m- loads more green space, you know, in ways that just wouldn't, you know, that kind of green sheen efficiency just wouldn't actually be able to function in that way. So that is, and it sort of does, it's a, it's another version of Keir's, you know, remark he keeps making, that climate change presents us with a situation where it's just, it is just like, it is revolution or death now. You know, there isn't really a kind of moderate, there is no third way now for us to take. You know, it's too late for that, to be honest. They should have, you know, if they wanted to, if they wanted, if they wanted a kind of moderate, you know, incremental reform. They should have started sorting out decarbonisation in the early 90s instead of just fucking, you know, imposing massive deregulation on the whole global economy. You know, it's too late for that now. Now we're either going to get, the Hacienda is going to be built. our way or the highway. (laughs) The Hacienda is going to be built or we're fucked, we're dead. (laughs) And we should say what, we should say what the Hacienda, what does it even mean? It's like, was it a Spanish word? I think Hacienda is just like a big house. Isn't the Hacienda a big house? Yeah, it is, yeah. No, I think the Hacienda is much more to do with, like, a, a sense of luxury and, like, you know, you being on the veranda of it's your Hacienda. It's the estate, innit? Yeah, it's like the estate. Yeah, it's the estate. It's like it's like your country estate. Yeah. But, but you know, for us. Yeah. Which, obviously, we want. The, the country estate for everyone. It might just be that, country houses, you know, country uh, manners for all sort of thing, but in the city, that sort of idea. But that does bring us... Like, it brings us onto this, because you mentioned, like, luxuriating. Yeah, one of my favourite words to repeat. <laughs> yeah, but, and so, like, th- when we're talking about, like, the Hacienda must be built or, or, or um, you know, we have, you know, Hacienda or death, whatever, <laughs> whatever's on the T-shirt. Um, like, that's not, you know, we, we are not pushing against a closed door, right? You know, the, in the Commonwealth released a report, so this new think tank called Commonwealth released a report about... Um, uh, how to get to a green new deal you know and actually it had a it's got like a map of the of of a, of a of a of a green new deal city from 2030 and you can go and click on all these things one of the things it says it says you know what we must have is communal luxury right we have, and in fact they do say that we have to have spaces for collective joy you need space of collective joy we need um we need communal luxury and private sufficiency is the is the idea you can't have collect, you can't have private luxury Maybe. private luxury is killing us we can't all have the luxury, you know, on a private level, but we could have communal luxury. And so that sort of brings us to this question again of like, well, what does luxury mean? Does it mean, uh, you know, I've got the best um, coffee pot, I've got the best watch, my watch really tells the time well. Well, that's not really what luxury is. It's not that super utilitarian thing. 
it's much more ostentatious and, you know, I've got it in my head like follies. Do you know what I mean? Where the, where 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 in Victorian times people built these follies, these utterly useless artifacts, basically these buildings which mock mock sort of castles, etc. Do you know what I mean? And it was these things of I like the idea of follies. We need communist follies. Do you know what I mean? These things which are just built because they they look beautiful and they may you know and people may find uses for them. Do you know what I mean? That doesn't fit into this sort of technocratic efficiency sort of city no it no it doesn't but also because the the key thing that i would that i want policy policy passed to create is time and space for people yeah because i don't want to spend any more of my time in fact i've i've actually given this up and i talk about it quite directly to people i don't want to catch up for a coffee with anyone anymore it's so it's such a crock of shit i want to sit down with people for five six seven hours and hang out i'm not interested in this kind of like minute city neoliberal forced way of 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 interacting with other people in some kind of like transaction where you catch up with people who you've not seen for like eight weeks because everything's so expensive and you don't have any time so what i want policy to do in cities is to facilitate the physical space and the space in time for people to be able to relate to each other as human beings which of course has revolutionary potential which is why it's dangerous but, yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, that really, that relates to kind of Lefebvre's idea of a politics of space. And, of course, it's, you know, the tradition within the, within the socialist tradition, within Marxism, the tradition is to be focused on time. Because basically that is mm. what, the, that is what the, the, the struggle, the class struggle over the value of labour, it always is. It's how much is your time worth. You know, that is what you sell when you sell your labour power. And the point made by people like Lefebvre is, well, actually, we also need to talk about space, about who gets access to space. And in fact, a point I've never really thought of it in exactly these terms before, but historically, that's one of the strengths of the right, is the right has something to say about space with its notions of territory and home and nation. Yeah, the right. I've been saying this for about six like, months. Yes. Whereas, like the Nate, whereas the the left usually, I mean, it wants to appeal to kind of imaginary universal space of the, you know, the imaginary universal space of, you know, the globe, the international working class, whatever. But I think we also, and the city. I mean, that's partly why. I mean, people have been saying for decades in, in different times that thinking about the city, you know, as a locus of political activity and the right to the city is important for the left because that's partly one of the ways in which the left gets a, a politics of space by valorizing, by valuing the cosmopolitanism of the city instead of being sort of afraid of it. Come on, come on, Back to London, no doubt. Go to London. I guarantee you'll either be mugged or not appreciated. <laughs> Catch the train to London, stopping at Rejection, Disappointment, Backstabbing Central and Shattered Dreams Parkway. In terms of, say, British political culture, uh, the left only does well when the general sort of mood of the country is quite positive towards London and towards sort of urban life generally. So in the 60s, I mean, the high point of kind of Labour's vote in the 60s is 66, is the year of swinging London. Like London is the place everyone wants to be and everyone kind of looks to. 
And Dorian Cleary to when everybody hates London and just thinks of it somewhere they want to get away from, they want to resent, they want to punish, they want to leave if they have to live there. You know, when the, the imaginary of the country becomes sort of faux pastoral or suburban, that's always better for the Tories. That's always better for the Conservatives. So even for people who don't live in London, I think, you know, there's something about the... Or don't live in a city... There's something about urbanity, about the idea that, well, basically it is nice to live in a cosmopolitan environment and to live in a culture where you're in relatively close proximity to lots of other people and you can all kind of move around and do stuff together. That is part of the left sort of imaginary, kind of necessarily, always. That's part of the sort of geographic split of Brexit as well, isn't it? It's like the urban areas are left, basically. Well, they um, did, but the point, made, the point made by Anthony Barnett is, for example, that's true. In England, it's the cities that voted leave and everywhere else that voted, and it's voted remain and everywhere else voted leave. But that's not true, say, in Scotland. In Scotland, even people in little villages voted to remain. And, there is, and some, one of the things that happened in Scotland over the past 10 years is kind of broad, kind of moderately social democratic, but sort of, you know, confidently cosmopolitan or imaginary that kind of radiate out from Glasgow, you know, has really sort of become a shared national imaginary. The Glasgow, the Scotland, even though it isn't particularly urban, isn't particularly urban sort of place, sort of thinks of it, you know, people in Scotland who don't live in the big cities are happy to participate to some extent in this kind of, you know, what we would think of as a kind of urban imaginary. And and, and it's through that that the left has actually become completely hegemonic in Scotland. So I think there is something important there. I mean, Scotland's got two cities, though, hasn't it? Two, you know, Glasgow and, and Edinburgh, like that, that you know london is those two rolled together times 10 or something do you know what i mean as a like yeah, uh, that's what makes the that what's what makes england so unbalanced i mean i think it does point to the really interesting question and thinking about the right to the city which is like what does well what what does it mean for people who don't live here i mean what sense do we do we want to claim the right to the city for people who don't live here and i, I always think it's important to say that well like i think you know, on the one hand, yeah, we all know that Britain is de- in desperate need of regional rebalancing, that we just need loads of resources pulled out of London and put to, to every other part of the country. But also, we're ne- it's never going to cease to be the fact that London is, you know, the only, it's the only world city on its scale in Western Europe. I mean, it's the only one this side of Istanbul. So, on, on, and, you know, it is always going to have a particular status. And we also should say that, but I think, you know, as a Londoner, I want to say, well, actually, look, London should be much easier for everyone else in the country to get in and out of and just use as a resource in any way they want to. And again, there is a sort of historic precedent for that because the Labour government, the 40s Labour government, when they, um, when they created the Festival of Britain, as this kind of national year-long festival of socialist modernisation, a part of the project was getting people from all over the country to come and come to the festival site on the, on the South Bank and, um, you know, I mean, can you imagine something like that happening now? No, could you no, imagine? No, 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 no exactly. Not. That's yet, yet another example. I mean, if the, the, there was just to interrupt you, sorry on that. The exhibition about the Festival of Britain that was done in the South Bank last year was just incredible. Just looking at the pictures of it and going, look, look at this as a as an event. It, <laughs> just it, the imagination it, of it. It is incredible. I would say anyone, anyone sort of visiting London, and even those of you who don't visit London, because hardly anybody who doesn't have kids even knows this. You should go and visit the South Bank Centre, which was created for the festival, but was created as this great kind of monument to the, a kind of mid-century social democratic paternalist, you know, still quite hierarchical idea of public culture. It is kind of extraordinary, you know, arts complex, but it was built in that way. But then the Greater London Council, the kind of radical new left council under uh, Ken Livingstone, 
They implemented, a yeah, they implemented a policy of making it much more of a kind of community space. And they implemented a practice which is still in place to this day, whereby actually uh, the whole centre is treated as sort of community space. So you can just rock up with kids and they're just allowed to play like in any of the corridors or as, long as, as long as there's not something specific going on there. So it, that, is, that is an absolute instantiation of what happens when the kind of politics of you know, statist social democracy is then further radicalised by a wave of democratisation you know, in the early 80s. And it's, still, it is, it's the most utopian sort of experience for me. One of the most utopian experiences you can have in London is just go with some little kids to the South Bank and just and centre and, and realise that, oh, it's not just a kind of stuffy art centre. Like, you're allowed, the kids are allowed to just run all over the place and play in it. And we're allowed to run all over the place and play with it as yeah, well, yeah. which is yeah. why so many people have had, like, book club meetings and, you know, political meetings there. And, uh, and I just want to echo what you've said, because I love the South Bank Centre, and it, it's so great, and it's called the People's Palace for a reason. Like, Thatcher tried to shut, shut it down, effectively, uh, at one point. But Interestingly, there's two things that has happened at the South Bank Centre, which, I mean, they made, they've made me incredibly sad. And whenever I think about this, it, it really worries me because I see it going down the same route as, you know, all the privatisation of everything, which is one, they've taken away all the plug sockets so nobody can plug in their laptops anymore which used to be the general thing that anyone could plug in their laptop and, you know, use it. And you'd get loads of people who don't have access to all sorts of stuff being able to work and or socialize from there via their laptops. And the second thing is, I don't know if this still exists, but it was definitely the case last year. And I had a confrontation with someone. They've got these kind of like blue shirted security people who try and stop anyone who looks like they're not middle class from basically hanging around. That's the exact sort of stuff that I think we need policy to be dealing with. Because that creep, that creep is coming in everywhere, whether it's a club or a public space or whatever. No, I completely agree. Okay, so um, at the World Transformed, which is a festival um, which happens every year, it's in its fourth year now, alongside Labour Party Conference in the UK, um, every year, a group of us who record this podcast, but also a wider wider crew, put on uh, an acid, so we have an acid Corbynist kind of slot, it's called, on the Monday night. And this year... Um, we started at about 7.30 on the third day of uh, the World Transformed and Conference. So expected people to be pretty tired. Um, but we started our event with basically this um, proposal that we wanted people to get into small groups um, and imagine that they lived in a medium-sized city and that their um, local municipality or council or whatever had passed policy to try and maximise joy in their city. And uh, therefore, at this point in time, we wanted to imagine them to be joy consultants and come up with three proposals. 
oh my God, were people excited. People were really enthusiastic and came up with some fantastic and also hilarious proposals. I, I can see three different themes come up. One is a lot of people wanting to enable communal eating and other people talking about communal play and rest and creches for adults and kids. So there's a lot of talking about those spaces as well. And then quite a lot of people talking about transport. Those were the, let me say, the more traditional kind of, I don't want to say traditional because that sounds really bad, but those are those are kind of the, the main themes that I sort of gleaned from that. There were also, there also seemed to be really randomly a, a thread of people talking about water-based activities, um, such as spas, hot tubs, and peached, peach iced tea fountains, <laughs> amongst <laughs> other things. So should we talk about this, this theme of the, the spaces for eating, play, rest, and, and maybe transport as yeah. well? I remember like communal feasting was, was something that came up a lot. I mean, communal eating, the idea that there should be more communal eating, is an, it's one of those ideas that has come from kind of utopian urbanism and, and has been adopted as quite an easy, quite an easy win by just kind of mainstream, quite mainstream kind of liberal discourse. So there's that there's that thing that happens every year, like you know, where you're supposed to like basically have a street party or a big um, with your neighbours that various kind of liberal guardian economists like to promote. There's there's that, and then I noticed just the other day, and the you know the big um, that. So at the edge of the housing development um, in the Olympic Park in Stratford, um, they've got these kind of free kind of barbecue areas, you know, where people people can just, you know, anybody can just rock and have barbecues. And that, it is all really nice. I mean, that is, it is good, but it is also, it's interesting that it's been kind of adopted. I mean, my worry is it's been adopted as in a classic kind of third way, you know, Blairite, neoliberal sort of move or something where it's very easy. It's, it's basically cost-free to just say, yeah, yeah, it's a good idea. Everybody should have street parties occasionally. People should have barbecues in the street. Um, and I think I'm totally for it, but I also think, well, in some ways I would say, actually, you've got to think, well, there's some you've got to see that stuff as symptomatic and you've got to say well if that isn't happening spontaneously there's something there's deeper stuff with the society you've got to fix i'm not sure just giving people barbecue areas is is we could co- we could compare that with um there was this proposal for a national food service yeah. um yeah um and it's, so this is going around social media the other day and, and it, it, people were saying that like you know in the post-war period there was there were a series of nationally run restaurants where you could get a meal for the equivalent of a pound today, so whatever that would be, uh, you know, um, you know, a healthy meal for the equivalent of, of. So that's like the idea of that sort of like people's kitchens or something like that, or you know, somewhere you could go and get your food if you were in a real rush. But it would be would. So that's not feasting, you know. That's not that celebratory feasting. It's more of a sort of utilitarian. But both, but both are. are I mean, I, I would see that as again revolutionary in 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 london now and and in other cities as well the idea that you could have you know like how many cafes have closed down for example like you could have long tables or you could just have any tables in every few streets there would be this place and it would be you know subsidized by the government i i hugely support that i mean the one that, the one you were talking about jeremy is the it, it was started by the eden project it's called the big lunch um and i mean I don't know how I feel about that, actually, because 
I ordered the pack for this year because I actually wanted to do the big lunch in my street because in, in the 1980s, you know, that we used to have street parties all the time in, in my area. I remember them from when I was a kid, but that doesn't happen anymore. And from an organizing perspective, I'm happy to use any to, to, you know, like jump on the bandwagon of like any national thing, you know, even like stuff like Macmillan, uh, coffee mornings or whatever to in in a way that I can get in touch with my neighbors and people living in my area like I, f- I find that I find these really useful um while also having a critique for the fact that of course the reason why we can't just do this is there needs to be an event for everything is symptomatic of course 100 percent. yeah I agree well it's a persi- but also it's just a persistent problem from a lot of the things we're interested in isn't it that well how do you there's a, there's a very fine line between something just become a, becoming a way of treating a symptom or becoming a, a, a mode of temporary escape from capitalist alienation and, and it becoming an actually, you know, implicitly revolutionary means of challenging it. And I think, you know, you, you don't know in advance a lot of the time which way it's going to go and it depends on the politics. So, yeah, I mean, the big lunch could e- is something that could easily be politicised rather than just dismissed out of hand by c- cynics. But what, perhaps it's like universality of, ac- of access is the, is the key do you know what I mean? And not just formal access, but like, uh, you know, the means to access this. Because that's the, that's the problem with all of these sort of like, you could even call them big society type things. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. They take yeah. place in certain types of areas with people with certain amounts of resources and they probably don't want certain, other certain types of people to turn up at them, basically. I mean, it's different for, for, you know, maybe I'm thinking about it from a suburban perspective, but I think it would work in cities as well. Like, it's also important if there's an excuse for literally everyone on that street to come out and meet other people it just breaks it just does break down barriers i know it's a cliche but it but it does that's why and the royal we, weddings of the 1980s were so marvelous exactly exactly <laughs> i remember the royal we- i remember the fucking royal hell, wedding party when put i was like hit on me after that <laughs> <laughs> but what but that's really important to look at and i think it totally is that when we do an episode in the future about the far right etc which i would love us to do in terms of like the emotional affect and the language that's used and we touched on that earlier i think it was jeremy when you were talking about how come it's that the right has this thing about place and you know the left has always talked about time and i think that's really really interesting but you know it's this memory like i have really fond memories of being a kid at you know like royal street parties because those were the street parties you know that's what i remember but it's not about the royal wedding in the same way that it's also not about corbyn in terms of like when we see the collection of people coming together like the stories that are told about the things that happen and how people connect with each other and the relationships that are built are nothing to do with this national event or this national figure it's just an excuse really yeah that's true it's a good point but also I mean, the counter to that is always to say, but, but the, the very fact that the, the desire for communality gets captured by images of royalty, nationality, sovereignty is, is also a problem. Of course. I was also thinking as well, with reference to the big society and sort of, you know, the, the danger of sort of sticking class of to policies that, well, it does matter to people and it affects people's sense of well-being and empowerment if they're living in a really shitty environment, if there's broken glass everywhere, if there's rubbish everywhere. But you know, there's a kind of right-wing version of that position, which is that the, the, the so-called theory of broken glass, police, broken windows policing, which became really influential in New York, for example, in the 90s. Which is you know the idea that literally 
you'll change you the, the way to deal with kind of you know a, a situation where you've got quite high, very high crime rates or high rates of so-called antisocial behavior is but you tidy it up you clean the streets you fix the windows and that will affect the mood and will affect the vibe and affect everyone's behavior and then real real sort of you know real crime will also decline and there's a sort of i mean and it's generally associated with really reactionary policies which which really like really sort of try to clean up the streets and try to and try to you know you know gets you know rough sleepers off the streets for example but you know so that people aren't kind of stressed out by them but also don't do anything to really provide some substantial opportunities for young people or you know homes homes for people and i think it is again you know there's obviously a kind of there's a kind of weird affinity in some ways between the kind of politics of urban aesthetics that we would want to promote and that kind of idea. But I suppose we also want to differentiate ourselves from it and say, well, you know, we also, you know, we want, you know, we want, um, you know, I think, I mean, what is the difference? I mean, we, I suppose we, we do want to, like here we're saying, partly it is about making sure you're actually addressing the underlying causes of, you know, urban decay or dislocation or so-called antisocial behaviour. And, but also, it is also about, I think, it's a different aesthetic as well that ultimately we would want to promote. It's a different aesthetic. It's an aesthetic which isn't just the aesthetic of sort of tidy streets. And it is, it's really interesting that this, it's something that's always really interesting to me that there's a certain kind of urban aesthetic which is sort of exemplified in places like sort of Barcelona, you know, sort of San Francisco before Google destroyed it. And it's this, you know, and it tends to be cities, you know, it tends to be cities with, you know, quite you know lots of sort of you know lots of mixed use streets you know lots of kind of public space lots of parks lots of squares you know lots of a certain kind of flow in the city and it's not just that some people like it it's that actually you ask you know almost anyone who's had lots of experience in different cities will talk about these cities as being the ideal i mean barcelona the idea of barcelona is the, like, the ideal city it's not something that just sort of anarchos have got into in the past five years it's been just a sort of given a sort of mainstream architecture and sort of you know urbanism for decades and i think there is this sort of urban aesthetic this aesthetic you know these situations in which you know, the, the democratic and, and collective and kind of the joyful possibilities of urban life become manifest. You know, which is quite, it, it's, it's, it's interesting to think this. It's quite easy to recognise. Like, it is pretty universal, the extent to which people acknowledge it and kind of they recognise it when they see it. People know a good city when they see it. They know what it feels like and people sort of love it. Because they experience it because they experience it in such a, like, physical way. Like, when you go somewhere and the architecture and the design is so bad... It, it you you experience that as well and that's why barcelona and in, in a way berlin and other places you're just like wow there's just something there's something here that i don't have in my city oh you can feel it yeah yeah no berlin's a really good example i mean it's boring how much people go on about it but like no one goes to berlin and just hates it and i've never met anyone who goes to berlin and said oh it's just it's just rubbish there's too many people milling about there's too many cafes like it's just I mean, there must be. Are there people? I mean, are there like just are there just armies of suburban Tories who would never go there, and if they did, they would just hate it? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not really question. sure about it. It's a good. No, it is a good question because you we don't know. I suppose we don't have the data on how conditioned we are by our by our, how our, our, our aesthetic experiences is conditioned by our politics. I'd like to think. Well, it's I'm going to I'm going to say we, we have some data, and I'm going to say actually I think they do. Because I'm going to say just anecdotally, those suburban Tories they don't go to Berlin, but they go to Barcelona in droves, and they fucking love it. They fucking love it. I think they would love Berlin if they went there. I mean, they still they want. I mean, those suburban Tories want nice little cafes and, and not too much traffic. You know, 
and they just think the only way they can imagine actually getting it is, you know, is in the sort of English suburbs rather than an actual urban centre. I think it is about what you've been exposed to and kind of what, I think it is about what you've been exposed to. And that's partly why it sort of links to what I was saying earlier about sort of, you know, different sort of political imaginaries that I, I had this phrase once sort of metrophobia, like the fear of the city it is definitely part of the discourse, of the historic kind of discourse and culture of the English, of the right in England in particular, I think. Yeah, England is one of the most urbanised countries in the world. Like, it is, it is just on every measure, it's one of the most urbanised countries in the world. And up until the late 19th century, that was its global reputation and its self-image. The self-image of England was the workshop of the world, the home of the Industrial Revolution, the home of liberal modernity. And there's this massive cultural project from the 1890s onwards to, to change that, to actually convince people that, no, no, what defines Englishness is its pastorals, its rural villages. Of, of which pleasant it, land. Yeah, exactly. Of which it has fewer than practically any country, any country in the world. But, but experientially, and, is that true? Because... Uh, so how is it the most how is it the most urbanized well, no, more people live in large conurbations than anywhere else on the planet particularly apart from like places like singapore you know as in, and, in um, the big cities or just in, well, any... in the cities or sort of medium-sized towns i mean there's fewer people living in the countryside than but, in, but in also be... i mean british people are more separated from the countryside than any other country yeah. in the world and that's because yeah. you had yeah because you had the that's why british food is so shit because basically, yeah, yeah, we, is, yeah. we were the industrial, we were the industrialized proletariat or the, the urbanized proletariat before anyone else. So we have much, but so there's no organic link to the to the to, to the countryside, which is like why Italian and French food is so valued. Is it because they've got linked back to to the countryside, and so the food that that is valued is peasant food. I mean, let me just—the point I was making politically before is that 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 in reinvention of British Britain, England as a pastoral place, it was totally part of the project of popularizing imperialism, and it was totally part of the an attempt to reject, you know, the idea that what defined Englishness was a kind of urban modernity, because everyone on the right and the left thought that the logical conclusion of that was would would be England becoming as Marx had predicted, like the first socialist country, and so they didn't want that to happen, so they had to project this new form of popular conservatism that was totally you know as i would say metrophobic kind of rejected the city and the idea of the city but yeah no that point about food is, is really important it is that the english because the english peasantry got the british peasantry got completely annihilated in the way that the french you know, the french peasant communes never did they never did get completely annihilated and, and indeed everything we now think of as kind of national cuisines was basically a sort of middle class and aristocratic like reinvention of peasant cuisines in the late 19th century and by the time that was going on we had no peasant cuisine left because the peasants had all we had no peasantry yeah which is why you've like, got and fish is, and chips and that you know the food of the food uh, to feed the uh, urban proletariat yeah well that's right yeah sugar see our previous uh, episode yes. <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> i still think we should say a little bit more actually just about i mean partly with reference to those um the event that we did and the stuff we talked about, but also just generally, like, well, what is it we want in terms of a policy agenda? 
like in terms of like what is it we want to see happen like we yeah we want to see communal spaces we want to see a serious kind of you know cultural policy program which which takes seriously the closure of venues in towns and cities the closure of art spaces which recognizes the, the value of people having access to kind of public space and urban space but i also think i mean one of my particular you know one of my kind of hobby horses is i think we need we and it still isn't really part of kind of a labor policy program at all like one of the ways of addressing the housing crisis is we have to get back to the sort of radical idea of like cooperative housing you know, democratically administered public housing because we're still basically in a place where we're either we're either saying ultimately we want to make it easier for people to buy houses and become homeowners or we want to create loads more council houses you know and i think you know, part of the problem with that is that well, the, one of the reasons Thatcher was able to popularise her project by basically giving away sort of council houses to, you know, the more the slightly more affluent members of the working class in the early eighties was because you know renting from the council was never a very popular option for people, even though loads of people did it because they didn't really feel in control of it. They felt like, you know, they were being administered by sort of a paternalist bureaucracy, and I think. You know, the radical position, you know, the sort of asset position has got to be, say, we, you know, we've got to make it possible if people want to, to live more communally, to live more collectively, to live more democratically. And there is, you know, there was a, pre- I mean, in the 70s, there was a move for that. I mean, there was a move under the Labour government in the 70s to create funds to support people setting up housing co-ops. And most of the kind of functioning housing co-ops in Britain still, you know, I mean, places like, like, like Coin Street on the South Bank, they were they came out of that moment. They came out of that the moment. There was a deliberate government, you know, project to encourage cooperative housing. I, I really think we need to get back to that. Yeah, I, th- I think another way to think about that is, you know, um, the, the sale of council houses and you know the neoliberal project altogether was sort of wrapped up in a story of freedom, wasn't it? And you know, it was the classic story was look, you lived in a council house, you couldn't even choose what colour your front door was. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and so, so that. It's obviously a false version of freedom, right? Because the sale of council houses now has now com- massively restricted our just about everybody's freedom because we just pay so much more of uh, proportion of our incomes on on housing. Do you know, it's but, up f- it's, through the roof. It's the biggest pri- pri- privatization that's happened in the UK history, as well. Like privatization yeah. of housing yeah. through that right to buy scheme. Yeah, but the w- the way you do it though, the way you solve that is my 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 point is that you have to mix that <laughs> collective ownership. With collective control as a, as a, as the, the the standing for freedom, do you know what I mean? Which does lead to things such as housing co-ops and you know the communalisation of of housing, because so you get control on you know on a on a very practical level, you know uh, on a street by street level, you know where you have to negotiate uh, the you know what goes on in your street. Uh, you know that seems to be the only answer, basically, rather than just just build more council houses. Oh, what a beautiful city. Oh.